This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What do we mean when we say move? I know we've already gone through this, but there are so many definitions, it's ridiculous. So let's get to them. Move. A pattern of dance steps. So don't just stand there, bust a move. Move. To propose formally in a deliberate assembly. Think a courtroom lawyer, I move to dismiss, all that formality kind of stuff. Move. To start away from a place. To depart. Like when you're sitting on an airplane and the pilot comes on and says, It'll just be a few more minutes until we start moving. Everyone knows what that means? No one's moving. Move. To take action. Of course we end here. This is what we're talking about. Being called to action. Being called to move. Well, good morning. As we continue our series, Move, a look at the book of Acts and Christ's mission as it unfolded in the early church, we're going to be picking things back up this morning in chapter 9. And so I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to chapter 9 in your Bibles with me. And I want you to enter into the story. I want you to use your imaginations as we walk through the second half of this passage, verses 10 to 19 this morning, as we find out what happens with this unexpected move of the gospel that we looked at last week as we saw Saul, who's soon to be known as Paul, the persecutor of God's people, encounter the risen Jesus. And we'll encounter this morning a new question with this of whether or not this has all gone a bit too far. Picture this with me. Uh, One of the great cities of the ancient world was Damascus. And that's where we're at. Damascus, the the pearl of the east. Uh, A city of white stone buildings set in the luscious greenery. Damascus, a city that stretches back to well before Abraham, and a city that was filled with thousands of Jewish men and Jewish women. A portion of those men and women had become followers of Jesus. And in that group, there was a man about middle-aged named Ananias. And Ananias is not the man that we met a couple chapters back who married the wrong woman and was struck dead by God. Uh, No, this is instead Ananias of Damascus. This was a respected uh, man who loved God and was a follower of Jesus Christ. And stepping into this story, into this moment, you can picture him there getting ready to step out the door, grabbing his cloak, lacing up his sandals, and probably muttering to himself, probably thinking to himself something along the lines of, well, something like this, well, I didn't see that one coming. Honestly, I didn't see that one coming, but then again, who really sees a vision from God coming? He doesn't really set appointments for these kinds of things. He just kind of shows up. 
But that's how it happened. Just a few moments ago, God spoke and he said, Ananias, when God calls your name, that's enough to get your heart pumping, pounding, really. And I answered immediately. I said, here I am, Lord. I mean, after all, this is a bit of a dream come true, really. For God to speak to you in a vision, this is something I'd always wanted. And I know the scriptures, when God speaks, you answer the call. And so I said, here I am, Lord. And he said, rise and go. And I thought, I'm all over that one. And then he said to the street called Straight. And again, no problem. Everybody knows where Straight Street is. And then he said to the house of Judas, Judas, I'm your man. I'm your man. I know exactly where he lives. It's just past the second colonnade, third house on the right. Got it. Or so I thought. That's when, as they say, the other sandal dropped, and he said these words. He said, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he's praying. If I had been taking notes, that would have been the point where my pen would have broke, and my heart that was pounding in my chest went silent. But God didn't stop there. He said, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias a name that sounded familiar, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, I I know, when God calls, you answer, and I know the Lord, when he gives you a vision with an exact address and an exact identification, and he's gone ahead and let the people know that you'll be coming, he means business. But but there was some consolation still in here. This guy Saul was praying, But I've also read the Psalms, and not every prayer is a prayer of blessing, if you know what I mean. And now this guy's got my name to fill in the blank. And I had heard about Saul. He he was literally here in Damascus to arrest me and my family and the other Christians that I knew. That was this Saul. That was this Saul. Frankly, this sounded like the kind of guy who should probably stay blind so that I stay healthy, if you know what I mean. And you know, I'd always thought that If God was speaking right to me, that I wouldn't object like, well, like Abraham had, or Sarah had, or Moses had, or Gideon had, or Jonah had. Well, you you get the picture. I thought I would get this one right. But when God's speaking, it's kind of like your heart is just laid bare before him. And what's exactly in your heart is exactly what starts to come out of your mouth. And so I said, Lord... I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind up all who call on your name. I thought, after all, how would God really use him? It seemed like a stretch, a move too far, if you will. But God answered, and for the second time, he said to me, go, go. For he has a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, when God calls, you answer. And I figured, if God can use Saul to carry his name to others, well, then he can use me to carry his name to Saul. 
Well, you can imagine Ananias there tying up the last strap and heading out the door. And in verse 17, we find out what happens next. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. As we step out of the narrative here this morning, we consider it. We're faced with a question. How can God use a murdering, unjust, and destructive man like Saul? Like Saul. As we saw in the first part of this passage last week, sure, God can save anyone. And that should give us great confidence. We've heard of all kinds of people being saved, but can he use anyone? See, we usually fall into this question on one of two sides. Like Ananias, we might ask the question about someone else. We might look at someone else and what they've been through of divorce or failure, or maybe they've been widowed, or maybe they've had some kind of a crime in their background. Maybe they're physically broken. Maybe they're financially broken, so on and so forth. And we wonder, can God really use them? If so, how? We're on the other side of ourselves. We can ask, can God really use me? Can God really use me? And depending on how we think of ourselves, our answers might run along different lines of maybe I'm far too ordinary for this work, or I'm so broken, I'm so sinful that I have nothing to offer. Well, when we consider this passage here of Saul's commissioning to ministry, it undoes all of that. In fact, one of the truths that we should walk away from this passage with is this, that in spite of us, God has chosen to use us. In spite of us, God has chosen to use us. God can use them and he can use you. See, we shouldn't fall for that lie that I'm, I'm not so bad, so I guess God can use me. Or they're not so bad, so I guess God can use them. Or that lie that I'm so bad that I know that God can't use me. And I know he can't use them. Neither one will do for us or for how we look at others and their usefulness in the kingdom. Because in reality, we are far more awful and sinful than we know. And Christ is more perfect and holy than we can imagine. And through his work on the cross and his gift of the Holy Spirit, we see that he doesn't just redeem our hearts, but he redeems our head and our hands as well. And he's given us a role in his work as his disciples. And this passage reminds us that if God can use Saul, he can use anyone. He can use anybody. Because God's ability to use someone is not based on their merits or the lack thereof. The starting point with God using someone is always grace. It's always grace. And that should be an incredibly encouraging truth. As one scholar looking at this passage wrote, God will reach to his furthest out enemies. He will defeat the uttermost human rebellion. Doing so, he, he does not crush these rebels, but loves and converts them into chosen instruments 
of good news. There is no one our God cannot choose to save, and there is no one our God cannot choose to use. That's great news. But I want us to pick up on the other half of this here. Because God doesn't have to save Saul, and God doesn't have to use Saul. God doesn't have to save us. He doesn't have to use us. Even in this passage here, he doesn't have to use Ananias. And as Christians, we experience, though, something better than a have-to-be-used situation. It's not like we are some old ingredient in the cupboard about to expire, and God needs to use us up, you know, to be able to get his work done before it's too late. That's not the case. We're not in a have-to-be-used situation. And it is an error, it is an error, to say that God doesn't need me, and it is much of an error to also think that God has to use me. That somehow I am the only one standing in the gap, and who knows what would happen if I wasn't. Neither of those will do. But we actually have one better, that God has chosen us. He's chosen to use us. In spite of us, God has chosen to use us. God made a conscious decision to use us. And that wasn't just true for Saul, but for you and I. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, it says, Brothers and sisters, think of uh, you when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world to despise the things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God didn't have to use us. But in spite of us, God has chosen to use us. It's an honor that we have received by grace. And the bestowal of that honor makes us responsible to steward it well. To steward it well. So let's unpack this truth in this passage. See a little bit of how it intersects with our everyday lives. And here we can see at least three examples from the text. First, God has chosen us with a purpose. God's chosen us with a purpose. Think back to the text with me. Verse 15, God has already spoken to Ananias once to go. And then in his mercy, God repeats his command, but he also gives Ananias some more information on why he's choosing Saul. Saying, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now take a note here. In the entire passage, with the events and the actions that are occurring, uh, and even here with Saul's own purpose being laid out, Don't miss this. Saul is passive. Saul is on the receiving end of all of this. And although this isn't a one-for-one paradigm with us, it should remind us of places in the Bible like Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, in other words, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like Saul, we had a purpose, we had a plan for our lives prior to coming to Christ, but we needed a new one. 
God wasn't leaving it to Saul, and he wasn't leaving it to us to just figure that out. And part of that purpose that we see here and throughout the scriptures is carrying his name to others. It's making the name of Jesus famous. It's pointing others to the glory of Christ. And we can do that in all kinds of ways. But think about how this intersects with your life. When you're wondering, how can God really use me? You know, I'm nobody, right? Well, from time to time, we all need to be reminded that God has a sovereign purpose for you right where you're at. Right where you're at. Not someplace else. Right where you're at. He has a purpose for you to carry his name to others right where you're at. So friend, you didn't end up working out that job by accident. You didn't end up in that family by accident. You didn't end up sitting next to that person by accident. No, God knew you'd be right there. Like how God knew that Saul would be on Straight Street in Judas's house, third door on the right, as it were, right? He had a purpose in mind. And good works planned for you right where you're at. So embrace it. Stop dreaming of greener pastures, of being someone else, somewhere else. Live it right where he's placed you because he's chosen you with a purpose. Growing up, my mother uh, used to tell me the old story of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, when she was born, she desperately wished to have blue eyes, but God had given her brown eyes. Uh, She prayed fervently that the Lord would give her blue eyes instead, and she was uh, sadly disappointed when he didn't. But later in life, God sent her as a missionary to India, where in the early 20th century, she spent her life rescuing orphans destined for temple prostitution. Because of the uh, dangers involved in doing this, uh, she went to uh, great lengths to disguise herself. She even uh, would take coffee and uh, dye her her hands, her white Irish pale skin with the coffee. Uh, But if she had had blue eyes, there would have been no disguise option in that day and time. And Amy Carmichael realized how God had had a purpose for her in her brown eyes in spite of her desires since before she was born. God was planning to use her right where he had placed her to carry his name to others. And this leads to our our second example here, because God has chosen us in our problems, in our problems. Now, obviously, as we look at Ananias' description of Saul in verses 13 and 14, Saul has lots of problems from sin in his past that spills over into relational problems in his present, and even you see that going on in some places throughout Acts, and physical blindness here to boot. But don't miss the timing here. God meets Saul while he is in his problems with a purpose. Nothing has been fixed when God chooses to use him in this way. And that's good news. Because like Saul, God has chosen us in our problems too. And that doesn't mean that our problems don't matter, or that they don't affect our fruitfulness, or that God's choice simply negates our responsibility to cooperate with God's sanctifying work in those areas, right? 
I mean, clearly, we see Saul engaged in repentance through prayer and fasting. And then we see in the following verses here, we see the results of that, where he is spreading the gospel right there in Damascus, where he's at. We have a responsibility. But again, don't miss the timing. God chose Saul while Saul was in the mess of his problems. And when we think about how that intersects with our lives, we think about this in two ways here. First, um, think about this and what this means for your value in this work. You don't have to debate it, and you don't have to artificially inflate it. As Ed Welch wrote, are you feeling ordinary or a little less so? Do you have the spirit? If so, you are just the person God has been looking for. When you, in your weakness, move towards others, you honor God and are more powerful than you know. You are qualified by the Spirit. Friend, you don't have to minimize and you don't have to maximize your problems for God to use you. Rather, you have to magnify Christ. He can redeem our problems for his purposes. And church, we don't need to miss out on this either because this is a mindset that we need for ourselves and for how we look at others around us. And this is that second way here. Because like Ananias, in our limitations, it can be hard for us to imagine how can God use someone who has done so much evil especially when that individual perhaps has wronged us or those we love. It becomes hard for us to imagine, how can God love? How can God forgive? How can God let alone use that person for service in his kingdom? Someone who has so deeply sinned against us. That's what Ananias is struggling here within his objection to Saul. But you know, just a couple of verses before this, back in verse 5, We see that Jesus so identifies with his people that persecuting them, sinning against them, is the equivalent to persecuting him. It reminds us not only, though, of God's concern for his people, but also that in our sin, God is always the most offended party. The greater sin is always against the Lord, and the greater forgiveness is always from the Lord as well. It trumps everything. That's how God can use them. And that doesn't mean that repentance, fruit of the Spirit, maturity, qualifications for certain roles uh, roles are thrown out the window. But truly understanding that God has done this and seeing that for us allows us to grow in seeing how God will do that with someone else. It opens the door to seeing how someone, even a Saul in your life, can be used by God. It changes our view of others to the point that, like Ananias, we can look at a Saul and call him not murderer, but brother. Friends, that's something that only the gospel can do. That's something that only Jesus, through his work, can do. And it's a great work. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize, if God has forgiven them, whoever that Saul might be in your life, that we need to recognize that God has written forgiven over their name, that he has called them as one of his children. And I don't know if you've got a Saul in your life that you need to look at differently. But if you do, this is that invitation to recognize it 
that his purpose is there in the midst of our problems. And as hard as this sounds, the good news is, is that you're not on your own to somehow accomplish that all by yourself. That rather, through the Holy Spirit, God has chosen us to receive power. God has chosen us to receive power. That's the third example here. The work that God has chosen his people to do is a work that we cannot merely do on our own. Think of this like trying to operate something electrical without electricity. The results speak for itself, right? The results, the consequences speak for themselves. Now in the text, we see how God is empowering Saul in four ways, at least, to accomplish his purpose and is redeeming his problems. Now in verse 17, we see Ananias laying his hands on Saul as a symbol of blessing and healing, and he's calling him brother. I mean, this is a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do. And he says this, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you can regain your sight. Your sight. That's actually the first way that God's empowering Saul here, right? It's not actually as practical as much as it is a confirmation of God's word that he has spoken here. And, goes on, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the second way. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales, think onion peels, it's the same word here, uh, falls from his eyes and regains his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. That's the third way. Uh, as it was a, a way of, of acceptance, showed acceptance by those local believers that Saul really was a follower of Christ. And taking food, he was strengthened, which is the fourth and obviously a very practical way that Saul is being empowered. And like Saul, God has chosen to empower his people to carry his name far and wide. Think of Acts 1.8 here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now think about how this intersects with your life and mine. God doesn't just have a purpose for why he placed you in that job, in that family, next to that person, having that experience, those problems, those pains in your life. He's put you there on purpose while you were in those problems and has empowered you as a follower of Christ to be a witness there, to be a witness in the midst of that, to carry his name there and to make it famous. And we need his power to do so. Ed Welch writes again that that is the reason we even consider helping others. We live in the age of the Spirit. Apart from Pentecost, we would be referral agents who simply introduce needy people to the real experts. We would hold our tongue for fear that we would just make matters worse. With the Spirit, we move towards other people and are amazed that God uses ordinary people to do his kingdom work. Having the Spirit does not mean that we are otherwise blank minds suddenly becoming streams of profound insight and comfort to those in need. We remain capable of saying stupid and hurtful things. Amen? But it does mean that our ability to help will bear the marks of the Spirit. Gang, because of God's power for his work, we remain confident 
Confident that God's purpose, even in my problems, can be fulfilled by God's power. So what do you need to carry God's name to someone, somewhere, where God is inviting you to go? What do you need to do that? Let me give you a marching order for this morning. Ask for it. And depend on it. And trust that God is going to meet you there as you faithfully step out to bring his name there. Hudson Taylor once wrote these words. He said, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Brothers and sisters, in spite of us, God's chosen to use us. And that's a privilege. It's a privilege to join in the work of making his name famous. And by his power, let's all answer the call. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that without your power, we are broken, cisterns, leaking, nothing to offer. But because of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we have the opportunity to be used by you, to be vessels that would offer the hope of who you are, the great news of who you are. That that is the overriding mission, the overriding desire of our hearts as you refine us. That we would become messengers for you wherever you've planted us. So Father, I pray for our congregation this morning. For the places that you have placed us, for the people that you have in mind for us to be taking up in obedience that call. May we have a dependent mindset that is trusting you to pave the way for us to go forward. We pray that in your blessed name. Amen.